0: Welcome to Voices of e-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall.
1: Hello and welcome everyone to today's podcast episode. We are excited to have you with us and we are very excited to have our guest, Tony Wan, Managing Editor at EdSurge, joining us on today's episode. Tony, great to have you on.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on, GW.
1: And uh, Tony uh, needs no introduction. Uh, he's a legend in the edtech space. But I'm going to go ahead and let him give a little bit of background for those of you that aren't familiar with Tony and with his work.
0: Thanks. Um, so yeah, I've been covering edtech for oh, almost like ten years now. Um, I joined EdSurge uh, several months after it started in early 2011. Um, I think was a co-founder and helped kind of help start many uh, of the coverage um the products uh and some of the services that you that are that are still in, around today um you know back then in early 2011 there i came across it because i was just finishing up uh rounding uh finishing my um stint trying my own edtech startup which is trying to sell and uh, sell math games in the schools uh, and then during the course of trying to learn about what the market was like, um, you know, I found that EdSearch was one of the few places that was servicing relevant information to connect both the education side of things and the entrepreneur and the financing side of things. So it was really started as a way to kind of bridge the entrepreneurial community and the education community uh, and getting that kind of double perspective, a dual perspective on this market at that time uh, was really, was really awesome. I, I mean, I found it as a useful resource and as it turned out, um, I'm probably better covering and writing about business than starting and running one. So, uh, I made that transition and, uh, have been, uh, you know, in, um, you know, later in 2011 and have been at Ed ever since.
1: That's great. Those who cannot do teach or become uh, managing editors. Um, so, uh, let's start out before we jump to the burning question of what's happening right now in all this COVID madness Um, and fast, fast forward, rewind about six months ago, um, which feels like six years ago now. um, And and give us kind of a status of what was happening in education technology in the investment community, um, kind of leading up to pre-March COVID.
0: I mean, I think before COVID, and I think even over the past, uh, the decade, right, the 2010s, I mean, I think you saw the gradual uh, emergence of uh, of several trends that are more in the infrastructure uh, space. So what I mean by that is that in K twelve and higher ed, you saw gradual improvements in things like technology infrastructure in terms of broadband, in terms of the availability of low cost computers like Chromebooks and things like cloud computing. Right, also paved the way to make it more easier to uh, distribute and uh, use uh, digital tools. So. You know, I would say that kind of leading up to this year, you kind of just um, saw this gradual, you know, this, this snowball getting a little bit bigger, right, uh, gradually. Um, the increasing digitization of a lot of existing materials and services that schools were already providing in terms of things like content and instructional materials, things like, you know, math, literacy, uh, science, um, you know, taking what was once offered physically and porting that over into a digital experience You also saw, you know, along with that some, uh, you know, the same thing happening with some of the operational and backend stuff, things around, let's say, communications, right? How do schools communicate with families, uh, students, uh, and their teachers? Um, So, you know, I don't think those were, these are ideas that are like wildly kind of mind blowing, um, but, you know, they often say that the education, adoption of technology kind of lags a little bit behind consumer technologies, and that's what we kind of saw. And so along of that digitization also comes with uh, the use of data, right? And so there's also, you know, um, there is also some thinking and hope around using data, uh, that is generated by teachers and our students to try to glean some insights into, uh, that education experience. Um, the idea being that using this data can help, uh, kind of inform and shape the experiences that students and teachers, uh, would get when it comes to, uh, teaching and learning. Um, that helped kind of create some terms like personalized learning or uh, adaptive learning, basically, you know, different ways of describing how one can leverage the use of data to help pinpoint perhaps areas that students might need more practice on or areas where uh, that make a teachers where teachers are more or less effective in in terms uh, of their pedagogy. Uh, One other thing is that I think in the post-secondary space, um, you know, you also start to see the emergence of alternative education programs that are more aligned to specific careers. Um, So, you know, programs that are more tied to the needs of the job market uh, and promise to help you, you know, get a job in, say, sales or or coding a lot faster. So, you know, boot camps, boot camps for coding, boot camps for sales, these alternative um, post-secondary models that are, um, that promise to get you a job, you know, a lot faster.
1: And w- along with that, micro-credentialing?
0: Yeah, micro-credentialing is, um, you know, one of the things that also emerged because, um, you know, a lot of employers might say that I don't really need, a, a, a college or four-year degree might be really nice, um, but I just want to know if you can do this task or use this tool very well and do it very effectively. So, you know, the idea of breaking up Um, you know, just this one degree, um, you know, this one broad comprehensive degree into a little more discrete and specific chunks um, is also something that, um, you know, was was something that was attractive in the market uh, as something that can help people, um, you know, identify skills and get the skills that they need uh, for very specific purposes.
1: Absolutely. And so that's a great kind of background of where we were now, the burning question is, where are we now uh, in this mess of COVID? And what have been the biggest shifts and sea changes that you've seen or are seeing play out right now?
0: Yeah, as you said, it's a mess, uh, it, you know, for, especially for companies selling to schools. It was, it was a system shock. Um, so let's start with K-12. Um, April through June is usually when, um, you know, sales decisions are being finalized and made. Um, that's also shortly after schools, uh, you know, started closing their doors and they had to make this, you know, very seemingly and hectic overnight shift to support remote instruction. And that, uh, you know, that was a disruption to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the ed tech procurement cycle that I think, um, you know, was a, you know, was a pretty uh, big uh, short term blow for a lot of companies that were banking uh, on those deals. Um, we've heard from companies that reported that deals uh, were being uh, called off uh, and they were left frantic, you know, frantic and wondering, hey, you know, some of these, uh, the sales cycle, this procurement cycle is very key uh, to their survival um, year over year. The other thing is that at the same time, while these official sales channels were being disrupted, a lot of companies also reported that they saw a huge uptick in interest and demand for their services. Uh, Khan Academy, for example, Said that it's uh, it's all something like a three x spike in traffic, uh, and kind of the 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 corollary to this is that uh, that also means increased server costs. So someone like Sal Khan, uh, who is often you know part of his job is to hit the fundraising campaign, he started talking about server costs in his uh you know as part of his fundraising campaign because that would that was like shooting through the roof, and that's uh, we've heard from other companies that reported a similar experience as well. Uh, and so, you know, in a sense, I guess it's a good problem to have that there's that there's so much traffic and demand for your services that uh, is actually increasing your costs. Now, if you look at the public markets, um, you know, different uh, not private not private companies, um, you've we've also seen that some digital first companies are perform- or have been performing very well. Um, companies like Chegg, which is more of a consumer oriented digital education business. Um, you know, its stock prices like doubled, something like doubled like since the, you know, since since the start of the pandemic. Uh something similar happened with 2U, which builds online programs for universities. Uh, and it's uh, what I consider its counterpart in the K-12 space, it's a company called K-12 Inc., uh, has seen something similar. Now the public markets don't always they don't always reflect reality, right? Um, because the reality is that for many K-12 and college K twelve schools and colleges, um, they're going to be hurting for money. And there's a lot of eyes uh, kind of watching how their budget is going to be affected. But, you know, I think that where there is a challenge, um, you know, sometimes public markets investors also see an opportunity for service providers to, to, to step in.
1: And, and really an opportunity to gain market share, that type of thing. Have you seen any very many businesses not make it thus this far? Or have you seen kind of, uh, you know, in, initial uh, investment continuing to kind of keep things going for most companies?
0: So uh, there are some tech companies whose uh, product or business model are revolve around in-person services. And those were the one, Those are the ones that have been hit the hardest, um, you know, in the initial months and have to probably make the biggest pivots. So there were companies that were um, trying to provide ride sharing services uh, specific for for schools and districts, right? Something like a, an Uber or a Lyft, uh, but to shuttle schools, uh, sorry, shuttle students to and from schools and homes. Um, that business, right, got wiped out. Um, other businesses that were essentially doing some matchmaking services for teachers and substitutes, um, you know, that business... That, that whole line of business, right? It's uh, not, not, not around anymore. So they've had to pivot, right, to things like providing homeschooling or helping to serve these, uh, you know, these pandemic pods that you might have read about where, you know, families are banding together to, um, you know, provide their own uh, private and small class uh, education um, gatherings with teachers. Uh, some of these ride sharing services, you know, they're doing like food delivery uh, or some uh, other kinds of uh, support services just for the product com- community. So um, we've seen, you know, certain type, types of businesses like that, that have been hit really hard that, you know, formally relied on facilitate, facilitating in-person models. Um, I would say that um, there's been an, a demand for tools that act as kind of like a central hub for organizing and connecting all the different pieces of technologies you need to make remote learning possible. Uh, so for instance, things like a learning management system, um, they're considered kind of the hub for, uh, you know, for organizing resources, for communicating, for, facil- for facilitating assignments and grades. Um, you know, tools that kind of bring other tools all together into one place uh, have um, been seeing a, a pretty uh, big spike in demand. I think Canvas, which is one of the biggest, uh, one of the bigger LMS providers, just announced something like thirteen statewide deals. Um, Schoology, which is a competitor, a competitor, uh, did something. You know, I think uh, did something similar in terms of getting statewide deals. So, you know, there are. Um, I think there's a lot of demand for services uh, that helped uh, that help school districts and families kind of organize. You know the smaller, you know, more discrete pieces of services that tie them all together.
1: That makes perfect sense, and a lot of these were probably already happening in many districts and campuses, but this just kind of forced those districts that hadn't kind of stayed ahead of the times or gotten with the times to kind of catch up.
0: Yeah, one of the problems was that I think a lot of schools and districts actually got barraged with uh, a whole a whole bunch of pitches and emails from different companies all offering their things, right? And it's like it's really overwhelming. And even if you agree to try to use a subset of them, um, you know, using what is essentially um, what may be a hodgepodge, right, of different, you know, of different products. That's actually, that actually can be a nightmare for, you know, you know, district officials who are, you know, whose job it is to uh, kind of, you know, or, you know, make sure that the, the tools that are being used in their communities are vetted and organized in some fashion. So something that helps piece all of these things together. Um, you know, it's not a surprise to me that uh, these kinds of tools are in demand.
1: Absolutely. And and free isn't always free, right? There's a time investment. There's a, a cost of switching if, uh, you know, a lot of these ed tech companies have offered a lot of free things in the short term. Um, what advice would you give to any district or campus leaders out there as far as how to, how to vet those?
0: Um, you know you want to see what uh you know what other you want to ask if other districts that are similar to kind of your student population or your uh or what resources you have you know what their experience experiences have been like you know to do some you know comparison uh, of that um you know i would also say that you ask about their uh the business model right because free is not so free is a great marketing uh tactic it is not sustainable you know for a lot of businesses uh, and, you know, one of the issues that has been, I would say, has been pretty pervasive in industry is that, um, you know, a lot of tech companies do use free and but fail to upsell to something that can help uh, sustain their, their business. So I would say that's another one. Um, and as we know from, you know, in the broader technology world, you know, sometimes the, the price of a free tool is the use of, you know, is, is your data. Right? What is is the company doing anything with your data? Right? Is your data the product that is actually being sold? Um, I hope that by now I think um there's been enough uh, tension and uh, awareness of data privacy and security that's not the case. But you know you can you can never be sure, right? You you need to double check you know, what's happening with that data, with the data that's being generated by your your teachers, students, and and families.
1: Absolutely. Um, let's shift a little bit back into the, the investment side. And I know you recently had a great uh, article um, at the end of July talking about how 803 million, um, EdTech raised 803 million in the first half of 2020. Um, what types of companies are really attracting the most interest from private capital right now?
0: Um, the biggest uh, fundraise, um, or I think the second biggest fundraise, then uh, uh, in, in that list, is a company called Coursera, which is uh, you know, which is uh, you know, one of the the MOOC companies, uh, the massive open online course companies that started around 20, 2012. Um, and they work with online universities to help them uh, build and distribute their courses. And I think they, they reported a huge spike in the number of colleges that, uh, you know, signed up to access their, to offer uh, their library of materials and resources uh, to their, their communities. So, um, you know, I think that one did, um, you know, that, that, that's been one of the, bi- the big players in the higher ed, uh, ed tech space. And I think based on that momentum, uh, you know, it did, uh, it was able to attract a lot of investor interest and capital. Um, I think something similar, but more for a consumer-oriented uh, market, Udemy is also, um, you know, attracting a lot of interest as well. It raised like $50 million back in February, and there are talks that it's, um, you know, in discussions to raise even more money. Uh, and so this consumer-oriented um, kind of online education um, offering uh, is something that has, I, I think, is something that, a lot of investors are kind of watching keenly. Um, you know, maybe the premise is that, hey, you are all sitting at home. Um, <laughs> there's not much else. There's not much to do outside. Um, maybe you know you want to learn something. Uh, you know, during you know during during, during you know during during at this this time in in quarantine or self-imposed quarantine. Um, you know, other tools that are more consumer oriented. You know, I talked about Chegg earlier in the public market, but um, a company like Quizlet which is best known for its uh, flashcards and other study tools that's, uh, that has been pretty popular among high school students. Um, You know, tools like that are also attracting, um, you know, uh, plenty of interest from investors. So, you know, basically, I think that the companies that have been able to, you know, I don't want, I don't like saying this, but like capitalize on the, uh, you know, on the early days of the pandemic to see a certain and saw a surge in usage, uh, many of them are trying to ride that wave and momentum, uh, you know, to raise additional capital. Uh, and on top of that, you know, something else in the higher ed space that's happening that I think is interesting is that usually in a in a recession or an economic economic downturn, a lot of uh, workers who have been impacted will you know go seek higher education or they'll take courses you know at you know at, at a colleges or re-enroll um, to learn new skills uh, to prepare themselves for when the economy picks up um, but in this pandemic you know colleges university and universities also hit really hard um, as well so um, that leaves a door open for I think the some of these providers of alternative credentials and alternative, um, education pathway providers, um, kind of like the boot camps that I mentioned um, earlier, for them to step in, right? Because what, we, what we're going to see is that there's going to be a huge shift in the labor market um, in terms of the jobs that people are going to be do, that are going to be doing or what jobs are going to still remain after this pandemic is over. Uh, and so to accelerate and support uh, you know this transition, um, you know, I see that there is an opportunity and also a lot of interest in some of these alternative, um, you know, more workforce-focused uh, education providers.
1: Exactly. And it doesn't really fall fully into that category, but kind of. I think another interesting one on your list um, uh, was Masterclass um, and uh, how that's a little bit more entertainment than education. But is that, do you think, a new style of education that's more engaging than uh Kind of the old school compliance model of uh, you know here's the information and kind of spit it back out to get your uh, certification.
0: Yeah, I mean I think so, right? I mean I don't think MasterClass is something that's going to give you. Uh, I don't think it's trying to be an assessment company and certify that you know <laughs> you can shoot free throws well or like hook up a really tasty steak. But you know I think that um, why can't education also be entertainment, right? And I think that's the kind of um, approach that MasterClass and uh, Roblox, which is kind of more of like a gaming platform, that, but, 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 but a gaming platform that also encourages and teaches people to like how to build and design and code games. Um, I think that kind of mash, right, that this mix of education, this overlap of education and entertainment uh, is also something that's very fitting and, um, you know, probably very attractive, uh, you know, in the consumer space.
1: Absolutely. So now we transition to getting your crystal ball out um, and making a prediction, not five to 10 years down the road, but maybe in the next two, three or so years. Um, is this surge that we're seeing right now, this private investment, a temporary trend or do you, is this going to stick with us for the long term?
0: I'm going to guess that it's going to stick uh, for us in the long term. Um, what I'm seeing is that Education is now attracting new kinds of investors into the market. Education is, is historically not a very attractive market or attractive bet for people, you know, for firms that are purely motivated to make huge returns. Um, but I think we're seeing that, um, you know, something about this pandemic has kind of highlighted how essential education is to the rest of society and, and our economy, right? And so we're seeing some generalist investors. Um, you know, the folks like Kleiner and Sequoia, who, you know, previously dabbled in ed tech um, uh, in the previous decade, and maybe their bets haven't paid off then. I suspect that, you know, big names like them uh, will return. Um, I think that even before the pandemic, um, we've seen a lot of private equity interest uh, in education as well. And I think that's gonna continue because uh, look, if You know, uh, if, if anyone's more kind of astute and cutthroat from a financial sense, right, it'd be some of the, the you know, the private equity hat folks. So, um, you know, we're seeing them partake and lead a lot of these investment rounds. What I'm also hearing is that a lot of ed tech investors are raising new funds from their own investor, you know, from their LP, uh, limited partners and investors as well. So I think there is this continuing uh, groundswell and uh, in, 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 in cash available. Uh, uh, for the market right now. And I think it reflects that, um, you know, perhaps it perhaps reflects broader societal recognition or awareness that of the importance of education, not just as a market, but just to, you know, the broader world and society as a whole.
1: And next question, what is something that people would maybe be surprised to learn about this segment?
0: One of the things I've been hearing from investor and in from the investment community is that, and something that makes them kind of more, maybe more jazzed, right, to continue investments is that, uh, at least in the U.S., um, there is some optimism that there's uh, this is going to lead to a bigger consumer, uh, uh, consumer or parent market for educational services. Um, in the U.S., it says uh, the, the parent and consumer market has typically lagged behind that of other companies like uh, Asia, right? Where in places like China or India and Japan, uh, you have um, parents who are more um, likely to pay and, you know, and pony up for some of these supplemental or additional services. Um, but, you know, these days, I think like with the shift to remote learning and uh, I think many parents are, you know, whether whether or not they want to, um, they're going to consider uh, going to spend uh, more on services to help supplement, you know, some of the gaps that are, you know, that I think the, the formal education system, despite its its best efforts, are uh, not going to be able to fill. Right. So, you know, I think that no matter what, you know, no matter what returning to school looks like, I think that um, for everyone, you know, for the edu- education system, I think this whole experience has kind of forced them to help prepare this need um, for uh, to, to better prepare for remote and virtual learning uh, solutions. So, you know, you know, parents are stuck with at the kids at you know, many parents are stuck with their kids at home, uh, if they're fortunate to, you know, be able to work from home, that is. Um, and they're getting um, you know, a first hand experience of what it's like to be a teacher. Uh, and they're finding that um, you know, they can only do so much to to, to, to support their their children.
1: And a newfound respect for their teachers, I'm sure, uh, by and large, Um, but also uh, a good experience that, again, hopefully stays with them uh, to be more involved as a parent, whether that's through their digital access once students are safely able to return to school um, and hopefully play a bigger role. Because I think a lot of the ed tech professionals I talk with are also Parents um, And even in their own homes, they've said this has been a, a really eye-opening experience. And there are a lot of positives, as many negatives as there are right now. There are a lot of positives that they're taking both personally and professionally. Um, one last question um, before we kind of wrap up. Do you have a, a hot take on what is going to play out in the universities uh, as far as is the model that we've had for this long, sustainable? Will all of the, the universities make it? There's a lot of talk that some uh, were maybe already on the brink pre-COVID, and now this is going to be really tough to, uh, to kind of come back from. Have you heard anything or, or seen any movement in that area this year?
0: I think that you know universities that were already in a financially precarious situation are going to have a, you know extremely difficult time uh in um trying you know in in kind of surviving this in both the short and the long term unless they really re, you know rethink and recreate what their you know what their value proposition is um for you know for the communities and for the students that, that they're trying to serve so i think that it's going to be pretty rough i mean some of them are trying to maybe realign themselves to be a little bit more um you know vocational driven vocational focused Um, And to help kind of, you know, serve, uh, help um, find a place in the pipeline between, you know, education and employment. Um, That might be, you know, one suitable way for uh, for some of these folks. But, yeah, I mean, I I feel it's difficult. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be in some of those shoes right now.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. It seems like there a lot of them are being forced to kind of look at things a new way and maybe even partner with some of the private sector. Um, in some ways, and maybe uh, respond to some of the complaints they've had. Employers, you know, by and large, 75 percent complain that college students aren't really ready with the skills they need, you know, coming out of uh, graduation. And so hopefully this is a a time where uh, the uh, the necessity is going to you know, bring some, some really long-lasting change that's going to be for the best for everyone. But it will be interesting to see how that shakes out. Okay, one last question then, and this is the, the biggest question. Um, I'm predicting that this is the beginning of the golden age of education technology. Um, you mentioned MOOCs earlier, and their spotlight was supposed to happen 10 or so years ago. Maybe it's happening now. Is this education technologies moment?
0: I think even broader than education technology, I think this is education's moment. Uh, but let me get back to, to, this, to that in, in a second. I mean, for education technology, I mean, these were certainly not the conditions in which any entrepreneur or executive could possibly have imagined or planned for, right? As far as the environment in which, um, you know, their tools uh, are, are being used, um, you know, but I do think they are perhaps in the best position to try to, you know, not just sell, but to support, um, you know, the the, the, the teachers and students and families that they that, that say that that they say or claim to be trying to serve. So, um, I mean, in that sense, I mean, this is their moment to shine or to uh, you know learn you know more about what it is that they can and cannot provide and the limitations of what technology can do um, you know to serve the uh, education community. Um, you know, I have not heard one instance uh, of anyone saying, you know, any school or district saying, oh, you know, like, I had a really good spring experience. That went, like, really well. <laughs> right? right. So that speaks to the limitation of technology. And I think more broadly, it speaks to the importance and the role of teachers, you know, in this space. Um, when I say that this is education's moment, I think one thing that I hope that we get out of this is that we think about how we train and support teachers and, um, you know, teachers were not, you know, most teachers I've spoken with don't ch- don't usually get trained in remote instruction or um or you know pedagogy online uh, pedagogy. Um and so I think this is really an opportunity to, you know, I would hope that they have included some of that um you know some of their remote instructional pedagogy into that uh you know in, in into that role because online teaching is not just taking what you do, you know, in person. And trying to throw that onto a Zoom screen or recreate that, right? It's something else. And so I think that for reimagining the teaching profession, I, you know, I hope that's—I um, don't want to say silver lining—but I hope that's something that this has all forced us to, you know, think really deeply and take action on.
1: Absolutely. And and you mentioned earlier, this is bigger than just online learning. Even a lot of organizations um, that have. Tr- historically been uh, ed tech um, have called themselves, you know, e-learning organizations. They're really just changing their names to learning organizations because finally, uh, online learning isn't a supplement to in-person instruction. It's moved to the forefront and will probably balance out somewhere to where it's a a core part of learning. Um, Do you foresee that as also being a, a trend moving forward?
0: I mean, I think so. I mean, one of the things I sometimes think about is like, when does ed tech just become like ed, right? Or when it's right. you know, just become education, you can make the argument that, you know, a, a pencil was technology, right, at some point in history. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that one day, you know, I may, uh, I may stop, you know, writing at, you know, having to use the word ed tech and I'd be just going to use education market, right. And in, in some of our coverage, um, I don't know if we're, if we're there yet, you know, but um, I certainly think that technology, um, at least digital technologies um, that we're seeing in the market today, that they're just going to be ingrained as a part uh, of the, of the whole education experience.
1: That makes perfect sense. I like to use the example of uh, STEM, then became uh, STEAM, then became STREAM. And those of you who know those acronyms know that you're just adding in math, science, technology, (laughs) and then you're adding back in art and reading and math. And and so really, it's just kind of was a focus as a a kind of a a supplement or a, a a separate piece of the equation. And now it's kind of just been added back in and embedded into core curriculum. And I think that's probably where we're going to end up, where uh, you're not going to see too many uh, places not using technology at all in the future, right? Uh, There'll be a wide range, but uh, for the most part um, hopefully that's another silver lining out of this this pandemic is that uh, we've accelerated what may have taken three five years uh, here in three to five months um, not without some pain for sure but um, uh, definitely a, a bright future ahead for uh, for everyone Tony, thank you so much for uh, joining us on today's episode. We will definitely have you back on a future episode. And um, thank you to everyone out there for listening today and spending time with us. And don't forget to keep always keep learning.
0: Thanks, G.W., that was fun. Hope to do it again.